Hey everybody, welcome back to Colony Drop, your favorite Gundam podcast. My name is Isaac. And my name is Brian, and this is a podcast where we talk about anything and everything related to the Mobile Suit Gundam franchise. From the anime, to the music, to the movies, to the models, to the manga, to the lore, to the food, to the clothes, you name it, we do it all, Isaac. And today is a very special day because it's been a while since we did a manga episode, right, Brian? It's been a good, ooh... Five, six months, maybe? No, no. We just oh. did uh we just did Lost War Chronicles, maybe uh okay. two months ago, I think. I don't know. All right, I got COVID brain, Brian. Time's moving quickly. <laughs> it, it's been just a rush since twenty twenty. Okay. <laughs> but yes, it's somewhat long overdue for a good quality manga episode. And boy, did you pick a good one for our episode today, Brian. I'm glad you think that. So today, listeners, we are going to review Mobile Suit Gundam Side Story Space to the End of a Flash, uh, which is a manga from 2003-2004 released in Japan. It was never released in English. And I guess I kind of know why, Isaac, because why would you buy this after that Lost War Chronicles debacle? Because this kind of came out in Japan right after Lost War Chronicles. So uh, if you bought your Lost War Chronicles and you were like, hey, this doesn't even have the last chapter in America. Why, <laughs> why would I buy the next one? So, so if you want to read it, Isaac, you got to take to the high seas and head out there for scanlations. <laughs> this is one of those rare times where Brian, uh, he went out into the dark corners of the Internet <laughs> to find some some piece of content. It's, you just can't buy in stores. He just... <laughs> You gotta find the the little secret file and, and grab it. You just type it into Google, and voila! <laughs> Sunrise is not even attempting to take things down. So yeah, I believe the scanlation group on this was uh, Nozaku Scanlations. They do a lot of uh, Gundam scanlations. And Isaac, this interest, a little bit interesting background on this on this story. Ooh, this is a manga adaptation of the thoroughbred story mode from the PS2 game. Mobile Suit Gundam Encounters in Space, which which came out in 2003. That actually did release in America, Isaac, so that one might actually sound familiar to you or anyone who <laughs> wow. had a PS2 back then. So this is like an extraction of a side story game extraction yes. that was in a video game form. Yes. Wow. Okay, this is three parts removed. <laughs> and because it was released in America, that was back in the day, Isaac, that the game actually had some original anime clips. Listeners, I'm sure you've seen these clips on, on YouTube where there's like newer animation of the original series. It's like slightly newer where you can tell it's from like 2000-ish, um, but it's not like obviously from you know 2020 or anything. But that's, I think a lot of it's from this game, Encounters in Space. And so because that game had original anime, they did some original anime for, for this story. And so you can actually, there are dub voices for the people in this story. Those clips are on YouTube. You can go listen to them. So Isaac, I don't know who you were hearing when you were reading this manga, but I looked up the two voice actors for Luce and Ford. Uh-huh. Uh, Luce is voiced by Scott McNeil. He's a very prolific VA. The th- roles I know him most from are Dinobot from Beast Wars. Oh my God. Wolverine from X-Men Evolution and Piccolo from Dragon Ball Z. Well, wow. He is A-list voice actor as Absolutely. far as I'm concerned. That's, yeah. Those are big characters in big series. Goodness. Ford is voiced by Andrew Francis, who's another prolific VA, but I wasn't super familiar with a lot of his roles, but, but the ones that I found that I recognized was Genki from Monster Rancher back in the day, Iceman in X-Men Evolution, and Dende from Dragon Ball Z. Huh. Okay. But he's also voiced several Gundam protagonists over the years. Tell me which one gets you really excited here. He voiced a dub voice for Judah in Gundam Dynasty Warrior games. Wow. He voiced Lass or Lace, I don't remember how you pronounce that character's name from Double O. And he voiced your boy, Asriel, from Gundam Seed. I like him already. Goodness gracious. <laughs> the first wow. voice, not the not the new dub, the old the old dub, the original dub. That's fine with me. That's the one I remember in my head. <laughs> 
let's meet him at a con. Tell him how much I support Azrael and <laughs> the nuclear tax, and and if he agrees with them. <laughs> Do you think he would get really uncomfortable? <laughs> so you got to stand behind your character. You got to sympathize with him. Come on, it's voice acting one on one. Do you think he goes to cons in the suit? I I would hope. I would hope. Oh, so. that'd be great. And he like bleaches his hair. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? So this manga is written by Tomohiro Chiba and illustrated by uh, Masato Natsumoto, the same team, Isaac, as Lost War Chronicles. So if you like Lost hmm. War Chronicles art, story, chances are you're at least going to like this one a little bit. Just coming out the gate, I don't even want to give my score yet, but Brian, what a fun, enjoyable read. It was a page turner. I thought it was fun. I didn't like it quite as much as Lost War Chronicles uh-huh. for a variety of reasons, but I do think it was still a fun read. And it was yeah. kind of odd to me, Isaac. I feel like... For the first volume, I felt like it really wasn't going anywhere. And then all of a sudden, they became, like, really important to the story. Yeah. Without really changing anything, so I thought that was a cool way to do it. Um, But I was a little shocked. It went from, like, kind of just playing on the sidelines to being like, no, we're involved in the actual conclusion of the war. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, (laughs) That would be actually maybe my sole criticism. The fact that as I was reading this and enjoying it, it got to the point where I said to myself, oh my god, there's now three Gundams being involved at Abawaku. And that absolutely cannot happen because that takes away so much from the one main Gundam. So for that reason, I kind of had a, a cognitive dissonance where, well, this is a good <laughs> series and things were you know, going pretty well when they were kind of like the mop-up fleet off in the corner of Luna, right? And yep. then that, that changed so much into, oh, we're at Baku too. In that case, I well, was like, oh, no, this is not <laughs> what you do with a side story because of how much it affects it. You guys are kind of Star Wars sequeling yourself where, you know, oh, Palpatine came back, but we had to fight him too. And it's like, no, <laughs> that takes away from the, the original Jedi that was fighting. And, uh... But Isaac, he, somehow he returned. I don't understand what more you want. Somehow more Gundams were there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh... That's an interesting point because they only go to Baku in Volume 3 which we'll get to but volume three is entirely a what-if scenario because it actually concludes in volume two and the reason there's a what-if volume is because in the game uh you could do that too depending on like how well you do but the canon ending if you will for for the manga stops at volume two they never make it to baku they stop at granada so was three his dream is that what we're meant to infer no, I think it was just, it was, it's literally like the, in the titles, it's literally called Operation uh, If Number Five. It's like okay. volume three is solely based around a what if scenario if one of the characters survives. I see. Because they open with like Ford having a bad dream. And yes. I thought to myself, oh God, this is a brilliant way to do like a what if. And then the dream kind of was like put aside as, oh yeah, he's a pilot, he right. gets nightmares. And then they were like, by the way, this is what would have happened if a certain character lived. And I was reading right. it and I was like, no, this is not what a <laughs> A side story can't kind of cross over this much into like the main story. Like it takes away so much from the main Gundam. If there was two other space-equipped, very specialized advanced Gundams there, especially if they're called Unit Four and Five, <laughs> you know that's that's insane. This would make sense more if they were named like that after like Double Eighty Three, but that's not really the case here. So I was, I felt like this was sort of um, as good and fun as it was. It wasn't a completely proper fit into the the timeline and that we know of but then again as you've said brian timeline schmeinline as far as uh, <laughs> bandai and sunrise are concerned they can do whatever they want with the timeline and the lore even if there is overlap that's not too big compared to telling a story bandai lives not in the universal century timeline isaac they live uh-huh. in a timeline called cell model kits 
Yes, sell so. plastic to people. <laughs> yeah, so in case you can't tell, listeners, Isaac is definitely a less Gundams are better. And that's not just because he's a Zeonic sympathizer. It's because uh, <laughs> he wants to preserve the specialness of having a, a Gundam, right? I think a lot of fans would agree with me, too, on that. That We all, we all love side stories. We need them. We crave them. But don't you dare have another Gundam show up at a Balakul. My <laughs> God, what a horrible idea. Can you... Uh, what would you even compare it to? Like, oh, it's Star Wars. There's a Return of the Jedi side story where there's another Jedi. There's a team of Jedis on the <laughs> second Death Star, and they're, like, about to make the reactor go critical with a bomb. People are like, no, this is nonsense. What are you doing? That's a fair point. Yeah. We mentioned this in one other episode, but I, I do think we are at peak number of Gundams for the one-year war. I don't. I think it would be a mistake to add more in, in future yeah. side stories. And even in this side story, there are two, uh, which feels like a lot, right? Given that for many years, there was only one. <laughs> You're adding two in a whole side story. But because they don't really make it to a Baku, I feel like it's maybe okay. But yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. So in general, this story, the logline on the wiki is not very good, but I'm going to read it. The story revolves around a second Pegasus-class ship, the Thoroughbred, and its crew, tasked to intercept a Xeon supply route behind the moon that leads to Space Fortress Solomon in preparation for Operation Star 1. To accomplish this, the Thoroughbred has been assigned two Gundams, Unit 4 and its brother Unit Unit 5, piloted by Luce Castle and Ford Romfellow, respectively. What I do like about both this story and Lost War Chronicles is that the cast was fairly small. I didn't get lost in, like, what is this character... Because it's only really two volumes, you know, three if you include the, the what-ifs, it's good to have a small cast. Yeah. So on the Thoroughbred side, on the Federation side, we have Captain Lombard Kilstein. Kilstein? You like Kilstein better? Uh, I went with Kilstein in my head, but... Kilstein. Okay. I, the more I read that, I thought like, oh God, this has to be like a Zeon officer name. <laughs> like killing and whatever, I don't know. Lombard is a hell of a name, Isaac. That's different. Yeah. We have the operator, Miyu Takizawa. She's going to be the, the girl talking in everyone's ear. Always got to have a Japanese character. <laughs> Always. Then we've got our main characters, Ford Romfellow, pilot of Unit 5, and Luce Castle, pilot of Unit 4. The moment you read Ford's last name, did you think, oh, this is a nod to Gundam Wing with Romfellow? Oh, absolutely. I, I feel like yeah. uh, if we're ascribing to the one timeline theory... Then his, oh, his, wow. his ancestors definitely started the, the Ramafeller Foundation. Wow. Oh, that's a great tie-in, Brian. Look at you, Mr. Dark History. All right, continue. <laughs> uh, then we've got Annie the Mechanic from Lost War Chronicles, a holdover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have a, a gun cannon team with three, three gun cannons. I don't remember their names. They're not very important other than the fact that they don't really like Ford. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, they're called like, I think they're literally called the Cannon Squad, right? Yeah, yeah, can, I think they go, they're, okay. isn't their call signs like Cannon 1, Cannon 2? I think so. And then on the Xeon side, we have Captain Nord, who I enjoyed. I thought he was one of the more multi-dimensional characters in this uh, story. Yeah, on the list of good Xeon officers. Yeah, he's high up there. But then on the list of bad Xeon officers, Mallet Sanguine is up there. <laughs> Boy, what a name, which as I'm yeah. sure our readers, some of our readers know, it might as well be at the name of Hammer Blood. <laughs> That accurately describes his personality. Yeah, wow. He was pretty gung-ho in the beginning. I just didn't think he would take it to the limits that he did. Goodness. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into him. He's fairly one-dimensional, though. And then we have the Dom Squad, Isaac. You had to be super excited there was a squad of Doms out there, right? I loved it. I also loved how, like, they kind of each had somewhat of a shtick, right? Like, there was yeah. one that only had that more advanced machine gun. That yes, was the only yes. weapon. And then another one fights with one bazooka. 
And then mm-hmm. another one fights with like two bazookas at the same time. <laughs> and they gave the two bazookas to the the small girl, Lilia Flaubert, who probably has the best name in this in this story. Yeah, she was the most gung ho though. There's a there's a certain part in the series where she says some comments that I really don't comprehend too well about her connection to Mallet. Like he only is able to express himself during combat. He's an awkward guy, but uh, that's why I'm such a, so devoted to him. And I, I thought that was insane. You know, like yeah, this is a little strange. Could yeah. be an awkward translation too, but yeah, it is very strange. Anyone following Mallet, you have to question their sanity. The the other two seem to be doing it sort of out of just sort of a somewhat of a blind loyalty to their their head officer, but her was it seemed to kind of be dipping into sort of quasi romantic somehow. Mm, but um, I could see we'll that, never know yeah, adoration romance a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then one note before we get into the summary, Isaac. So again, this this story is about the Thoroughbred. It is another Pegasus-class ship. And we talked about this briefly in our Lost War Chronicles review because the Thoroughbred did make an appearance there. It's shown up a few times before coming to light in this story. But it was first mentioned in the second Mobile Suit Gundam novel from 1980, but in name only. So if anyone has the paperback edition that was published in English, you can see it in there. But if you watch the original... TV show, the original Mobile Scum TV show, when they're at Jaburo, in the hangar, in the back, there's another green-colored Pegasus-class ship that was kind of clearly just sort of background, you know, image fodder, Isaac. Yeah. But this story turned it into the Thoroughbred, and that's why the Thoroughbred has a greenish hue to it. It's not exactly white like the white face. Huh. I had no idea it was greenish. Like, do you even really see that in any of the few color images? I don't think you do. I don't know that a lot of the color images have the thoroughbred in it, but yeah, if you go look at the the art and stuff online, there's a few uh-huh. pictures where it is colored. And it's it's not. I wouldn't say it's green, but it has a little bit of a, a sea green, you know, overtone to it. So I see what you mean. Sort of in the first image, it's kind of um. Well, there's they even color the Solomon's that same color, almost mm. a gunmetal green. I don't yeah. know what you'd call it. Okay. Yeah, sure. it's, it's a light green. It's a tinge, you know. It's it's not a fluorescent green battleship out there. Honestly, I feel like that was that's a poor choice within the lore of the universe because, as we all know, there's only one side that routinely paints their ships green. <laughs> that's so, a fair point. <laughs> the Federation doesn't have almost anything painted green. <laughs> so I'm not sure what the logic was, but yeah. <laughs> I, I do like it in the sense that they tried, They looked at the show and they were like, all right, we're going to do something with this. Yeah. You know, and it was green in the show. So I, I kind of get that. So I, I give them props for that. But I agree. It, do, it is a bit odd. So many other colors you could have picked. <laughs> and then the last bit about the Thoroughbred, you know, spoiler, it does survive this story. After the one-year war, Isaac, it is refitted and assigned a new mission in another side story called Battlefield Record UC-0081, which we'll have to read someday. Yeah, I wonder what that ties into. Huh, interesting. Anything before we get into it, Isaac? No, just that um, drawing style, very crisp, very well done. I was almost never confused on any of the panels, which you can't say about every Gundam series, especially in combat scenes. So applause from the get-go from the first page. Yeah, hats off to you again, uh, Natsumoto-san. Like I said in the Lost War Chronicles review, Isaac, all these characters, they're all going to come back again in Gundam Legacy in a a sort of Avengers-style team-up. Oh, wow. Along with Midnight Fenrir Corps from uh, Zeonic Front. So. Oh, my God. Yeah. Isaac's just like, she's getting excited over there right now. Uh, just, yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it basically has eight parts if I ignore volume three. So the first part is fairly simple. I do think the volume one was a little simple, Isaac. So yeah. we open December 2nd, 0079. We're late in the war. And as we saw in Lost World Chronicles, the Thoroughbred launches from, from Jaburo. We're in space. 
our Gundam's Unit 4 and 5, they're having a mock battle with the Gundam Gun Cannon Squadron, and we find out that the Thoroughbred is part of the 16th Autonomous Corps, which is basically just it and two Salamis, Isaac. Yeah. What I guess so I noticed what was weird about the Salamis, we didn't really see a whole lot from them throughout the manga. We didn't see anyone who was on those ships, and I guess they don't really matter. No, I mean... As far as Salamises go, they were lucky to be alive by the end of the story. That's true, yeah. But um, they, they did exactly what Salamises were meant to do, right? Just kind of hover around in the background with the Gundam <laughs> do stuff and just shoot lasers. That's yeah. it. Just flak fire and take up space on the battlefield. Yeah, just follow orders from the main <laughs> flagship and that's it. Uh, we learned a little bit about the characters. Luce and Ford, they were simulation test pilots at Augusta. Luce is a bit older. He's a little more mature. Uh, Ford has a lot of promise, but he's very rash. Kilstein, Kilstein, the captain, his son died in the Battle of Loom, but he wants to keep fighting. I, that's actually not accurate, Brian. Um, oh, I think no? you mean he... No, oh. no, no. He, he died in the liberation of Loom. Please God continue. Damn it. I fell for this one last time, too. <laughs> you will routinely fall for this. Uh, <laughs> um, so he tells the crew that their orders are to supplement Operation Symbala, which is the Federation's fleet attack on Zeon, and that will culminate in the attack on Solomon. And the thoroughbred has a very, like you said, janitorial role in this. They will guard the rear of the fleet <laughs> in case Granada sends reinforcements to Solomon or Abaku. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, It does. Right? It does, actually. I, I actually think yeah. it does make perfect sense. They're in space ahead of the fleet, and they're stealthily destroying Xeon ships. But I, I agree. I think it actually makes complete sense that you would put Gunnams here, because the Federation's logic is like, hey... It, this is a one-shot attack, right? Operation Symbolo is we're sending everything we have to go attack the Xeon homeland. And if it doesn't work, like, th this is it. And so if they want to cut off reinforcements, putting two Gundams in their way is a really good way to make sure it works. Yeah, and, and maybe not necessarily that they're Gundams, but just a, a fleet in general being there for that purpose. It makes sense. It's perfect for a side story. I kind of have half a problem with the Gundams being there just because what are these prototypes doing there? Where are they four and five? Where's the rest of the numbers preceding them? Oh, um, we can but, talk about that if you'd like, Isaac. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so well, Unit 1 was destroyed in Side 7. Ah, uh, okay. By Char's attack. Uh, Unit 2 is obviously piloted by Amuro, RX-78-2. <laughs> Unit 3, there's some controversy about Unit 3, depending on where it went, but it was never, <laughs> it was never really used. There's two versions of what happened to it, but the, I think the main one that is that it was at a coup, but it was not used. It was in a ship that arrived there late. It was on the Blanc rival, and uh, it was not used because, one, they got there late, and two, another pilot named Jack Bayard, he accidentally crashed into it when he uh, tried to land back on the ship with his gym, and of, he damaged it. Of course he <laughs> and did. they couldn't use it. Oh, my so. God. <laughs> Please, he must have been court-martialed. I think he went on to have a, a good career, but he also... Oh, my God. He was also the test pilot of uh, Unit Zero from the Gundam Development Project, so the the Blossom unit. Wow. And, and the same thing happened to that one. He blew that one up in, a, I think, either a test exercise or a, a random encounter with a, with a Zeonic thing. Like, on its first flight, he blew that one up, too. Okay. This guy's got a history of, of ruining Gundams. <laughs> a mix of proper use and tragedy has befallen the preceding <laughs> units. <laughs> And then uh, Unit 4 and 5 are in this story, and then Unit 6 is uh, the Gundam Mudrock, which is in Zeonic Front. That one stayed on Earth, I believe. I don't, I don't know if they ever took it to space, because uh -huh. I haven't played the game, but hopefully we can play the game, Isaac. And then there is Unit 7, but that was not put into service until after the war. I, I believe that Unit 7 is the focus of that other series that includes a thoroughbred. So that's in, like, 0081. Am I to understand there have been seven Gundams 
all before the year 0080? Well, Unit 7 was never built. It was designed. Okay. Units 1 to 3 were designed at the same time. Okay. And then, well, you also have to count to Alex, right? That was developed in parallel. It was not along with the first batch. Yeah, that would be part of the series, though. So it, it depends, again, which theory you ascribe to, I think, but I believe that Unit 3's data was shared with the Alex or something like that. So, anyway. Mm. Oh my god, what a mess. <laughs> In the novel, Amuro gets Unit 3 towards the end because he needs an upgrade. And so the Unit 3 has the magnetic coating. Okay. Impressive. The, that's the quick rundown on Gundam history as it is in, in my head. So <laughs> I'm sure there's other, you know, more comprehensive uh, videos on it. But uh, then plus you got the ground Gundams, but those are not exactly the same. So. Oh, yeah. We got, we got Easy 8 doing who knows what. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, Kilstein's son, what did, you, what did you say? He uh, sacrificed himself? He perished opposing the liberation of Loam. Oh, there you That's go. That's exactly yes. what happened. <laughs> so yeah, they're on janitorial duty, Isaac, here. They're, they're basically going to guard the base, right? Yeah. But again, I think it makes sense. G4, or Unit 4 and Unit 5 are meant for anti-ship warfare. And the object here, Isaac, which is what I want to ask you about, you're the World War II buff here, so... The logic is that Unit 4 is equipped with what they call a mega beam launcher, and it takes a long time to charge. So you send out Unit 4, and it charges up, and then it destroys the fleet. It's a fleet destroyer. Sure. Unit 5 is its escort. It's supposed to sit there and guard him while he does that with his giant Gatling gun. Does this make sense to you? I see almost no correlation. <laughs> Barely any correlation to the to Captain Kilstein's comparison that this is like U-boat warfare from the Second World yes, War. Yes, that was my next question. The only connection I kind of feel is like, well, we're stealth because we have Manovsky particles, and U-boats were kind of stealthy because they were underwater. Sure, I'll give I'll give you that similarity, but. Uh, the U-boats were not really used to protect, like, the rear of a German fleet. They were used to, like, attack transport ships that were going across the Atlantic. This is this is very different work. And more to the point of, like, the actual use of the mobile suits, which are key to all this, um, the U-boats weren't, like, equipped with a fleet-destroying torpedo. <laughs> you know? That would be war winning and the the guard for the the u-boat that shoots a fleet deploying torpedo didn't have like a massive gatling gun i feel like giving one gundam the big mega beam cannon and then the other one just a gatling gun to guard it was a little a little silly (laughs) i felt like one gundam should be like a big shield or something that would have made more sense right like oh we put like i don't know i a prototype i field into this gundam or something um or or a magnetic field that kind of deflects bullets and that's how we're protecting the uh the main sniper um mega beam cannon gundam but that's not quite what they did and it 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 half worked for me i like the idea of the meme weapon um it clearly (laughs) clearly needed to be uh properly used and i like how you you essentially need to like turn it on and then turn it to try to hit all the ships like line them up oh yeah yeah you'd like drag it you know you sweep it across yeah exactly yeah but the the gatling itself always felt it was I don't know. Maybe I'm viewing it wrong. It's it is pretty effective, I guess, against taking out large numbers of mobile suits heading towards it. It's actually even effective against capital ships. Maybe they should have just sent out two Gatling guns. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, they, they should have definitely shipped a second Gatling gun because I felt like Luce was kind of like, all right, well, I'm just gonna sit here with my with my normal rifle while you use the Gatling gun, and my my big gun doesn't work back at the ship. So not even that, but at the beginning, 
like neither of the weapons are actually ready. Like they were sent out into space, not completely ready. Yeah, because the, the mega beam isn't ready. The Gatling's not ready. They kind of just go out as standard Gundams, which I thought was bizarre. And not even that, but this might be one of my small criticisms. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. I feel like Ford. He's like a a teenager they picked up off the street. Like the things he's saying, like what's teamwork? We don't need to work as a team. And all the stuff he was saying was like, wow, you know. Or why is this conversation about the purpose of the mission other than exposition? happening on the ship you know we should have talked about this in Jabra in like a meeting room <laughs> so I, I felt like some of those things didn't really make too much sense and maybe could have been done better but they're very minor yeah I think Ford is, is very immature for being in the position yeah. he's in right so I mean I guess he is the pilot because he does very well in the simulations it feels like an mm-hmm. odd reason to give someone a Gundam of all things but yeah those must have been high scores goodness me <laughs> I mean I think what gets me about the strategy Isaac is I feel like once you introduce a Gundam onto the battlefield that becomes Zeon's main target so if you're trying to be like stealthy and wipe out the fleet I wouldn't give the big fleet weapon to the Gundam I would give it to the unassuming Jim so that when they then when they see a Jim hiding out they don't really care too much yeah yeah maybe you're right well then again when Zeon first sees the well, unit five, I think is it what is what they notice first the cannon. I don't, I, think I don't it remember, is, right? but uh, it could okay. be. I mean, they didn't. He didn't have the cannon for a while because it's, it's sitting in yeah. the ship. So that that's the big conceit of the story, listeners, is that the Gatling for unit five works fine, but the beam cannon doesn't work, and so it's, it's they're trying to make it work, <laughs> but it's sitting on the ship. So they they're essentially like not able to do what they're supposed to do. That's sort of like half inaccurate, though, because they did pretty well they without did. the they Gatling did. gun and the beam cannon. They took out the whole Zeon fleet. That's true. So. They did. <laughs> we get a glimpse of Granada. Uh, so Granada is yeah. under Zeon's control on the moon. And a lot of cool uh, Luna shots, Isaac, in this. We got to see, I forget if it was Von Braun or Granada, but the one that was... Uh, what they call it, like a city underground or something. I thought that was neat. That was uh, Von Braun, which we see later on. But uh, Granada clearly looks much... I like how they really differentiate the cities because Von Braun absolutely looks like a city underground. Granada, it's just like a almost a sterile, much more utilitarian military base, just a, a cylinder into the ground. <laughs> yeah, Zeon doesn't have time for fancy things, Isaac. We just, we just No, or whoever done. built it was like, look, this is a very purpose-built manufacturing center. And um, I'm glad they pointed out that Granada is kind of Zeon's big manufacturing area for the, the war itself. So if that goes down, then the war's all but done. While at Granada, we see that Jake and May from Lost War Chronicles arrive, but they are told there's no room for them and they need to they need to leave basically. So Jake was uh, the guy on uh, Ken Biederstadt's team who he sent into space to protect May, who was the the, yeah. the girl operator. So they they came back and they're gonna go home to side three as long as they can get a ride home. Uh, then we meet the antagonist here, Captain Mallet Sanguine. Oh, boy. Man, he's just a class A bully. I don't know. He he does not like Jake for being part of that expat force, Isaac. He also called him a runt. And then I was looking at the page, and I was like, you're maybe an inch and a half taller than him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I felt like Jake was bulkier than him, too. I feel like he was kind of skinny, you know? Well, I mean, Jake was really biting his tongue, but he obviously could have shouted out that, look, I've actually fought on Earth. You know, that's something Mal's yeah. never done to my knowledge. Yeah, that's true. But here we see that kind of the, the big suit of the of the thing. Mallet eyes an Aktazaku, which was brought to Granada from uh, Pezin or Pezun, depending on how you want to pronounce that. Yeah. I, I think Pezin is a pretty cool place in the lore that doesn't get talked about a lot unless you really like Gundam Sentinel. 
No, yeah. But yeah, it's it's basically like Xeon's third asteroid base. And there was a series in the 1980s called MSX where there was a bunch of designs done and these designs were being manufactured at Pezin and really only at Pezin. And a lot of them basically didn't get used because they couldn't get into the war in time. But every now and then we get a side story where they ship one out and one of the suits makes an appearance. And one of those suits is the Akzaku. There's also like the Gigan, the Pezin uh, Dewage, which is like yeah. a Dom sequel, Isaac. And my personal favorite, the Gashia, which is like a two-person mobile suit. It looks oh my like an amphibious one that, that uh, is made for space combat with two pilots. <laughs> Gotta have one of those. Of course. Anyway, we could probably do a whole episode on uh, Peasant. But yeah, the small fleet launches from Granada, and Ford takes the Gatling, he confronts them. He recklessly destroys a Musai, and he, but he actually ends up needing Luz to protect him because he went out too far from the Dom Squad. And then they order, they order Ford to retreat, but he doesn't retreat, and he, but he, he does succeed in destroying, like, the last Chevet. But this is, like, two battles in a row now where Ford just kind of rushes in, and like you said, Isaac, he's just not great at this teamwork thing. Like, it's just not working. No. The whole time, like, Luce is, he's constantly trying to be, like, kind of a mentored big brother on the team. I mean, he is a big brother. Yeah, just giving him advice about, like, teamwork and, like, what you have to do. It's, it, it comes off as Ford being not the right fit for this type of role or how he even got into the military and still needs to be kind of pep talk <laughs> about like the importance of teamwork or how like everybody else on the ship is really helping them. You know, it's, it's very um, immaturely bizarre for a pilot. I feel like. Yeah. I'm surprised that captain Kilstein didn't take him off the Gundam. Yeah. Based on his actions. So I'm also curious, Isaac, do you think, cause I, I feel like in this manga unit four and unit five did fine, but I don't feel like they were overly oppressive by themselves. Do you think Amuro unfairly raised the reputation of Gundams? Um, well, I'm not sure I'd say unfairly, but like he he's in a class way above them. Or well, maybe not unfairly, but was it more Amuro than the Gundam? Oh, I see what you mean. In this case, I'm going to kind of say yeah, the the user of the tool is the one that determines how effective it is. So, yeah. A loose and Ford are kind of doing okay enough i wouldn't say they're just invincible against these fleets that they're 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 easily taken out with the element of surprise but yeah amaral with his new type abilities is arguably the best new type in uc is um multiple classes multiple levels above them anytime any place so operation three it's we fast forward isaac to december 24th so the federation fleet is launched they're attacking solomon and thoroughbreds mission remains eliminate all reinforcements coming from granada General Nord at, at Granada. I think I called him Captain earlier, but he's actually a general. I think he's the base general, yeah. right, for, for Granada. Right. So, yeah, he finds May and Jake a ship home, so they get shipped off. So now our Lost War Chronicle people are, are sent home for the next adventure in Gundam Legacy. He immediately shows us that he's a reasonable good guy. <laughs> I kind of got the feeling from him that he doesn't really love the zombies, Isaac, but he, he more cares about space oh. and independence and... He's concerned that if he f- stops fighting for the zombies, that mean, will mean they lose, and then no one will. If they lose, no one else is going to care about space knowing independence. So, like this is this is your opportunity. Absolutely, he's openly he, he's like Lino Fernandez, where he's pretty much openly not in the zombies' camp. Um, he's doing his fighting for Site Three in Zeon, but not necessarily for the zombies. It felt a little like slavery wasn't the reason for the civil war to me, though. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, you feel like he punched his ticket way back when? Um, I just feel like some really bad things have happened and he's still kind of justifying it that way. I don't know. 
Yeah. But I guess all of I guess all of Zeon is. So I'm great that we saw him as as being much more nuanced, like you said. Yeah, I'm sure his hands aren't clean, but um, he he's he's one of the few ones to say they're dirty and they should not have been dirty. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, he is very nuanced, which is completely the opposite of Mallet. Oh yeah, he orders uh, Mallet to escort the reinforcement fleet. Who, who Mal then goes out with Zack Zaku and Mallet is just like obsessed with total victory no matter what he's Nord asks him like what he thinks and Mallet's just like well I would just want to win I just want to win and like that's it I feel like Nord was not impressed with Mallet at all not liking Mallet and Kilstein was not liking Ford like these the commanding officers have <laughs> they're like very disappointed in the people that they are uh, commanding yeah that's true it's a little different though because Ford and Luce are kind of you know counterparts but Sanguine uh, Mallet has no equal he's in control of his squad and when he goes into combat you know, whatever happens it's it's his call yeah that's fair Malik goes out with the Akzaku with the and the logic here is to tr- try to lure out the thoroughbred because they, they need to find the thoroughbred basically because the thoroughbred destroyed yeah. the last fleet before they were able to tell them their position and, and their s- scope of strength and stuff so and I guess here I have a question for you guys you're the Zeon person here sure is the Akzaku enough of a draw I personally really like the Akzaku lore and looks wise although there's not there's not a master grade and there's not a re 100 there probably should be but is it special enough to be the big bad in this show or in the series um i feel like in his hands it clearly did good enough to match them they're not high enough caliber pilots to really overtake ha- uh, mallet it fits the side story because it shows how low on resources zeon is that they're essentially sending out a glorified zaku with some upgrades that's going to be their their ace in the hole to try to handle this threat got it. and what did you think of the color scheme because the the axaku has a variety of color schemes there's i think the normal one like the original drawing i think had it with like blue and white and then it's in zeta gundam it, it, it the federation ends up like mass producing it kind of like after the war and the, it has a darker color scheme but then mallet's color scheme is even different it has it's like a dark purple and light purple uh I don't think I like that too much. Yeah, it's it's too purpley. I would have liked a second different tone of color. Got it. Okay, so then the other two, there's the one from Zeta Gunn, which is dark. That's pretty close. And then there's the the other blue and white. I kind of like the blue and white. Yeah, that's got, I don't know if it's just the nature of the colors, blue and white, but it's got a good look to it. Almost like this would be their, um, their space guff. Space guff. <laughs> I like that. It's not just that they kind of upgraded it and gave it magnetic coating. The other thing they didn't really put too much emphasis on is they gave it a pretty compact beam rifle. Oh, yeah. It has a custom beam rifle. Yeah. It's the smallest beam rifle I've ever seen. Almost a beam pistol, but like a pistol sounds like too weak of a name for it because it's still pretty powerful. Oh, it's very powerful. Yeah. I mean, the Akzaku has to be one of the better performing suits we've seen from Xeon, especially with the limiter off as we get to the conclusion. But there's just not many of them. You know, God, my, my question about the limiter getting ahead of ourselves is why even put that on the rationale <laughs> that I, the engineer did not explain himself very well. I didn't think it made any sense why that was on. I think it was to not kill the pilot just because of like the, the speed of movement. You mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so. Okay. I think it was supposed to be like, Hey, it can go this fast, but we think you as a person can only go this fast. So therefore we've tuned it to you. Oh, God. I, The Isaac fleet would absolutely take off the limiter and say, good, good luck out there, team. You know, there's, we either win or we don't. All right. You signed up for this. Yes. You're going to need that speed to get past the, the nuclear shockwave. So Ford and Luce launch to combat Mallet. 
Luce takes the Mega Beam Rifle out over Miu's protest. She's begging him, don't do it, because it doesn't work. They think it's going to overload. Ford engages Mallet, and they, he stalemates with him long enough for Luce to charge it up, and he, he does shoot. But Ford does have to save him from getting destroyed by Lilia uh, at the last second. The shot does work. It destroys Mallet's chevet but it loses power after that, and then both sides retreat. I think that was one thing I didn't like about this series, Isaac, is both sides, there was too many confrontations where both sides just retreated for no real reason. And and the reason was that the chapter was over and that we needed to start a new chapter. Yeah, it it felt very um, understandable with how these Gundam stories usually go. Like, how many times did did Ko and Gato fight and then only to, like, later on have to fight again and then leave and then fight again? Yeah, there was not a, they could have fought to the death sooner, I think, but... Oh, absolutely, yeah, episode one, but no, they didn't. Uh, so Operation 4, Lunar Surface, Luce and Kilstein are not super happy now because Mallet's people got away, and now they know that the Thoroughbred fleet really only is a Thoroughbred and two Salamis. And the Thoroughbred fleet needs supplies, and they can't leave the sector because they don't know when Zeon's going to launch again. So they send a convoy out to Von Braun on the other side of the moon to go get the supplies. We get right down to Von Braun Isaac, and they go to Anaheim's HR building, which made me crack up. And we meet Tracy Lemoore, who apparently used to command Luce when he was a fighter pilot. She reveals to everyone, especially Ford, that Luce was headstrong just like Ford. So there is hope for Ford after all, Isaac. He, he too can become a mature pilot like Luce. They sign the contract for the supplies, which is a classic, uh, quote, neutral Anaheim move, <laughs> where they say, oh, sign here, and we'll definitely give it to you. You don't have to say you put it in your little ship that's not marked as Federation, but we know who you are, and blah, blah, blah. Was she animated to be a little person? She was very small. I don't know if she was a little person, but yeah, yeah she was tiny. Or she was just one of those old ladies that, like, as they aged, they shrunk. I think it was more that. I think they were conveying okay. that she's old, and, and that was their way of conveying it was... Look how small this this woman is. So. And are we to understand she's the head of Anaheim or just the executive at HR that's managing this deal? They just referred to her as the executive who is signing the contracts. So I don't think she's the head of Anaheim. Oh, okay. All right. High enough to sign a supply contract, which is... Yeah, but probably not, not too high enough, though, there'd be a scandal. Okay. Correct, yeah. As our team is on the way back, Mallet attacks them, of course. I did like here, Isaac, that the Unit 4 and Unit 5 were, like, hanging from underneath the convoy, and they just dropped onto the moon. That was kind of neat. I liked that. Oh, yeah, that was brilliant because I was reading it and I was like, oh, this is an undefended convoy. Like the Xeon, they can either blow it up or just capture it. And then who's with them? Is it Annie or? Mew's with them. Oh, okay. I, I was confused yeah. about that though, Isaac, because when they said we're going to send a convoy, they made it sound like it wasn't going to be very defended. But the, really, everyone went. Like the gun cans were there, <laughs> the Gundams were there. <laughs> like everyone was there. No one was guarding the ship. I, I assume the ship was just relying on its stealth to protect it. Yeah, it could be. And they figured, well, they'll be back in like a day or two. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a cool ambush. Where are the Gundams? They're not in like secret transport pods or anything like that. They're underneath the ship. Yeah, I like that. That was a cool uh, visual that was unique. Yeah, loved it. Great way to ambush the Xeon too because they didn't see it either. <laughs> yeah, they're like, ah, oh, crap, the Gundams are here. <laughs> like, so They're underneath. Yeah. <laughs> this is also like the fourth or fifth time that Mallet has reminded us that his Akzaku is magnetically coated. He loves to talk about magnets. <laughs> I wonder if anyone actually like ever sat down and said, do you actually know how magnets work? <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you that Mallet does not know how magnets work. That must happen in the military, right? Like the engineers give like the fighter pilots some like quick science talk and then the, the pilots are like later on talking to like the crew to the crews or like rival squadrons. They're like, yep, they put the new uh, the new afterburners on. It, it injects, uh, you know, pure O2 into the fuel line and then the engineer just kind of leans back and says, do you know what happens when pure O2 hits a fuel line? <laughs> Yeah, 
yeah, it's the equivalent of the, you know, the magnets, man. Oh, magnets. They repel stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> or they attract uh, negative, positive, something like that. All right. <laughs> so Ford is having trouble fighting on the moon due to gravity, which seems, again, like he should something he should have trained on in that simulator, given that that was all he did. Not just that, but some of those scenes confused me a little bit because the Akzaku's like doing dancing around him. And then there's like a panel where he says, oh, I think I'm sinking into the moon. And part of me was like, what the hell is going on? How is he (laughs) sinking into the moon? Like, shouldn't Von Braun be like at the core of the planet if he's able to sink into the moon? This is very bizarre. And I thought he was Mr. Simulator. You know, oh, he should be great at this. And this isn't like Cohen and Nina situation where... No, no, yeah. Yeah, the Gundam was not adapted for space. No, this Gundam is only used in space. Right. So yes. I, I, that was a little bit of a bizarre scene. He does eventually figure it out, but it was a little odd to me that he had never done a, a lunar simulation, I guess. Yeah. The convoy almost gets uh, destroyed here by Lilia. She keeps almost getting the kill shot, Isaac, but never quite there. Well, she's got double the chances because she's got double the guns. <laughs> but again here, they kind of just fight to a stalemate and Zeon retreats and the colony returns to space with not a whole lot of explanation. Operation 5, Explosion Flash. Tracy covertly calls Kilstein to tell him that peace with Zeon is close, but that Girin still wants complete victory. Good. She still believes the Granada fleet will launch to reinforce a coup. And I guess what I'm confused about, Isaac, is now at this point the Granada fleet knows how big the, the force is. I feel like the Thoroughbred and two Salamis can't... Is, there should just be a bump in the road if they all just launch. Like, are they really going to be that worried about it? I mean, I know they have the beam gun, but it only blew... At this stage, it only blew up one Chevet. Yeah, that's true, but I don't It might be a case of, well, send out all our fleets to take out three ships. That's a little silly. You know, what if we need them to go somewhere else um, or something happens? So it's we, we can't put all our eggs in back, one basket to take out one problem when we've got other problems pending and other spinning plates to keep spinning. Oh, they've got problems, Isaac. Yeah. Oh they're going to lose the war. <laughs> so Nord concocts this plan. He, he's like, okay, they're going to attack us. So we're going to bait them into it. And I think they're going to be right here because that's where I would attack us. It's a little debris field. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the Dom Squad out and Mallet out. And they're going to wait there for these Jokers to come into the debris field. And he sends the Dom Squad out, not in their Doms, Isaac, but he sends them out in a brow bro. Yeah. Like they just had one line around. Yeah. They're just like, oh, look, we got a, we got a spare. We get a cool little spiel here about how it was obviously originally for new types, but the three normal people should be able to get its full power. And then Mallet's like classic, you know, he believes in magnets, but not but not new types, apparently. He's like, new types are bullshit. <laughs> Federation propaganda. Cassilia is wasting her time, which I thought was interesting because he's, he's a very loyal Zeonic officer, but he's openly criticizing Cassilia here. Yeah, I was, I was wondering if that was more a case of, well, if you're in Zeon, it seems like everybody's loyal to one member of the Zobbies. You know, nobody's, <laughs> That's a good almost, observation. Yeah, almost nobody's loyal to every Zobbie. That's true. You have to pick your racehorse and you kind of go with it. Yeah. In Mallet's case, I think he was just, he's loyal to the war. So he yeah. wants to fight. That's all he really cares about. And the idea that, you know, who knows what he's heard through the grapevine about new types. But as him being not a new type and definitely not involved with the program, maybe he feels some a wise sense of uh, self-preservation. And, you know, oh, I don't need them. I'm better than them. So this is all just nonsense about, you know, brainwaves and all that jazz. Yeah, it could definitely be an ego thing for him too, right? He, yeah. he would refuse to believe a new type could beat him. So Right. So the Granada fleet launches. The Thoroughbred fleet plans to attack him from the debris field, just as Nord has planned. Unit 5 and Unit 4 
uh, are there. Unit 4 is going to charge the Mega Beam Launcher over Mew's protest again, but Luce is like, ah, I think I could do it. I think I could do it. Mallet and the Dom Squad come. They wait in silence, and they attack. Luce engages Mallet, but he, he leaves the gun cannon to face Mallet because he, he goes and helps Ford with the mobile armor. They double team the Brow Bro. They get inside the wire-guided attacks, and once again, Isaac, the mobile armor falls <laughs> to a, a beam saber <laughs> to the face, which is... Classic mobile armor, super effective damage. Well, that's it for the mobile armor, as usual. <laughs> <laughs> Although the Dom Squad did escape. Did you notice that because they weren't sitting in the Psychomu cockpit that they were able to escape out of the like normal person cockpit? Yeah, this might be the only time we see a mobile armor like escape pod, essentially, or right. at least their, their cockpit housing be able to detach like a shuttle and just boost away. I thought it was interesting that the Psychomu is almost treated like a pilot itself if they gave it its own cockpit, you know? Because they weren't good enough, they had to install a separate cockpit, and it actually saved them. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, well, we don't have a new type, so the Psychomu will be in the cockpit, and you guys will <laughs> sit in the back in this shuttle thing that we slapped on. Yeah, no, no, you guys can't sit there. Go sit back here. How did this work, you think? Like, was the Psychomu maneuvering it, and they were essentially in charge of the tethered bits? They were glorified turret operators? I think the Saikami was just inactive because there's no new type to run the Saikami. It can't run by itself. So I think one of them was moving the thrusters, one of them was doing okay. the weapons, and one of them was doing, you know, I don't know. Comms or energy. Yeah, stuff exactly. Like that. Okay, engineering. Okay. That's a more logical division of labor. Okay. Do you think they made them still wear the big helmets? That would have been funny. No, they look like they're in their normal <laughs> helmets. Yeah. <laughs> Loose fires and destroys the fleet at the much protesting of Miu. This is where, to your point, Isaac, he really drags the beam shot across the battlefield to, to uh, much success, really. And while he's firing it, Ford draws Mallet into the line of fire, and his visor shatters, and he takes a bunch of glass to the face, which looked pretty not fun if I'm Mallet. That was great. It reminded me of like that shot we get of Kelly Lazner when he got like mm. a third cooked by the solar yep. system. I was like, I guess if you're close to a beam, but you could still get cooked. Yeah, and we find out the Akzaku wasn't really damaged all that much. It was really just a, to your point, a, a small cooking in, in the cockpit that, yeah. that uh, endangered Mallet. So. It was that magnetic coating. We just got to slap another <laughs> coat on. It's like paint. <laughs> But unfortunately, uh, Luce was not as lucky, and the gun does sort of overload a little bit, and it breaks Unit 4 to the extent that his hatch is broken, he can't get out, and the little generator that's attached to him for the gun explodes. Yeah. Very clearly killing Luce. Not good. I guess, Isaac, is he the only one-year war Gundam death? I guess he is, right? Huh. Well, we don't know what those side stories are in the corner of the universe. Um, But to our knowledge thus far, yes, he is the only fallen Gundam through the course of the One Year War, unless you consider EZ-8 to have fallen. Yeah, but the pilot didn't die. As well, oh, did he? According to the Federation. uh, Oh, well, that's true. Where'd he go? Yeah, that's true. Okay. But, but, uh, you know. Confirmed death, yes. We'll go with that. Yes. Operation 6, Light of Hope. Four drags the top half of Unit 4 back to the thoroughbred in a futile attempt to save Luce. I mean, he's already dead at this point. Mallet is injured. He's going to surgery at Granada for those visor shards. But the Axaku's fine. So you, at this point, you know that we're going to see Mallet again. The thoroughbred uh, heads to Solomon, now renamed... Uh, well, in this manga, it's called Kanpei Island. But I don't know if you know this, Isaac, but most of the older dubs and older translations use Kanpei Island. We heard Kanpei Island in uh, 0083. Yeah. 
But it has since been clarified. I don't know if you know this. Uh-oh. It should be called confeto. What? And that is because the shape of Solomon looks like this particular candy. And so the name is a pun on the, this, the way that the candy is shaped. It's based on the this Portuguese candy. The Portuguese word is confeito or confeito. I hate that explanation so much. <laughs> that is nonsense. That is the answer. So it's it's really confeito now. But uh, those of you who want to stick to Canpe Island, I mean, I'm not gonna gonna stop you. Yeah, you know what? We're gonna treat it as a um a Josh A Joshua situation from Seed, <laughs> where the same a same location can have sort of multiple similar names. Just throwing that out there for you candy fans. Terrible. We should have one of those candies, Isaac. I wonder if they're good. Can we look it up right now? Confeito. Here we go. Confeito. C-O-N-F-E-I-T-O. This is just a Japanese crystal candy. We've all seen this. Yeah, so it's a pun. I assume, based on its size, that the Portuguese were trying to say confetti. Probably. That would kind of make sense. I've had this stuff before. Like, it's sugar. It is pure sugar. <laughs> is it the rock sugar? Is that it's it? a rock candy, yeah. That's all it is. I mean, it's good, yeah. but, like, even I can't do, like, you know, a bag of it. <laughs> it's good once in a while. Because, like, it's so popcorn, kind of bite-sized. You know, you, you take a few. Yeah. I could see them selling that, like the Gunham Cafe, though. Sure. Here's your Confeto candies. It's your Confeto Islands. Yeah, <laughs> sure. So while they're at Solomon, which is now under Federation control, obviously, Unit 5 gets some upgrade parts. It's literally just some shoulder pieces. Kind of strange. Uh, Miu cries with Annie about Luce. Ford has actually locked himself in his room. He he didn't even go to Luce's burial in space, although he, he points out that it really wasn't a burial because there was no body in the casket. That's such a technicality, though, because, like, the whole reason we're here is to mourn this man, and you didn't even True, show yeah. up. You were the one member on his squadron. Yeah. He's, he's not exactly in his room having a party or drinking. He's in depression. Yeah, he's grieving, absolutely. Up to this point, he has not really felt fear, and he's now afraid to fight, and he doesn't know how he can do it all alone without Luce. But Mio gives him the classic solution, Isaac, the Gundam slap. She slaps him real hard across the face. Oh, my God. Tells him that he's being conceited and that everyone is fighting, you know, not just you. And that gets him out of it. And then right when Ford kind of snaps out of it, Isaac, the solar ray is fired. Degwin's dead. Revel's uh, dead. Uh, yeah, I got <laughs> The war has taken a new turn. And then this is when we get our new mission, Isaac, which, like, blew me away. They're like, all right, Thoroughbred, your new mission is to escort the Zeon Prime Minister, Darsha Bakarov, or however you want to pronounce that, yeah. to Granada to sign the peace treaty. I was like, whoa, that is not where I thought this was going. Yeah, me neither. On the one hand, it might be the best suited fleet for it, because they're a stealth fleet, right? Sure, So yeah. I assume they can stealthily move the, the Prime Minister. But at the same time, I was kind of like, wow, this is a pretty big role for a side story. <laughs> Even before that, I, I was kind of like, oh... Another Federation officer slapping somebody. Of course this would happen <laughs> on the Federation side. And if you remember in the series, even before that, there was like the fight in the cafeteria. Oh, yes, yes. So Federation, always hitting each other. You don't see Zeon doing that. <laughs> but anyways, back to the Prime Minister. Yeah, this is great lore. I really enjoyed it, how we saw that, okay, things were in motion from Zeon's government, or at least elements of it that wanted peace, way before the war had actually ended. So that was pretty cool. Right, because dude was already in the ship. Like, he was already on his way, right? Yeah. It wasn't reactionary. This guy clearly had a plan. Yeah, I love it because it shows that the zombies don't have a complete tight control on things, as we've seen, with even Dorn being able to um, kind of mouth opposition to them. 
Fernandez too in origin. But this show that this guy saw the writing on the wall. Maybe he didn't even know if the zombies would be dead by the end of the war, but he wasn't waiting for a Balakou to even start, I think. He just, whatever back channel plans they did, he was ready to sign a peace treaty, which was great. Yeah, and the reason why I like this lore is because this takes a previously known meeting, but it didn't really have any details because we didn't see it before. It was just like, okay, well, they went over here yeah. and they signed the peace treaty. But now you actually put some char- some faces to it and a situation, and it doesn't really change the outcome, but it just it fleshes it out a bit, which I think is great. So that that's a really good use of a side story, and I like that. Absolutely, yeah. And it kind of makes sense, too, because, well, a-, a zombie wouldn't do this. And number two, who's high enough in the government where someone signing a document would actually work and be, okay, be the the, the prime minister of what we can assume is Zeon's uh, powerless parliament underneath the control of the zombies. Right. And I also like that on the same train of thought, it also makes sense that not everyone in Zeon, particularly at Granada, would be super excited to sign the treaty right away. So, of course, they're going to resist, you know. And that's exactly what, what happens. Granada has 30 ships, and they are not going to surrender. But the Zeon Prime Minister's forces, they've agreed to help the Thoroughbred against the Granada forces if it comes to it, including a cool guy that we met who they didn't even really give his name until Volume 3, but his name is Lieutenant Barst, and he's a pilot of a Gelgoog uh, that Ford ran into while sort of like guarding the Prime Minister's ship. Yeah, that was cool when they met the Chevet that the Prime Minister yeah. was on. Because if you look closely, its guns are pointed down and away from the um, uh. the thoroughbred. Additionally, the Zaku on top of the of the Chevet, the facing the two Gundam pilots, it is unarmed, and the Dom mm. next to it has its its bazooka on its back. Those are nice details by the, yeah. the artists. Definitely there for peace, and the Prime Minister chose his Ben well because boy, the, the squadron is also devoted to seeing this war end. But unfortunately, Nord does deploy all of Granada's 30 ships. He's not going to surrender while everyone in Abaku is fighting, which I guess is understandable. Yeah. Everyone launches. Ford takes the front line with the Gatling, and Nord decides to encircle the thoroughbred fleet. But Kilstein had a plan. He was he was going to wait. He does get through. He, he does take the Prime Minister's Chevet to Granada, but Nord figured he would do that, and he left some ships behind to block them so now they're kind of screwed and so just as they're about to clash ford is on the way to kilstein nord calls for a ceasefire because he has found out that abaku has fallen Giran's dead Cassilia's is dead and kilstein accepts the the ceasefire basically right away he asks him why and he's like hey abaku's down everyone's dead there's no point anymore furthering our thought that nord is on the the, the list of good zeon officers or reasonable zeon officers yeah but that's about to get overshadowed by the actions <laughs> of one man and his his three underlings <laughs> mallet however is livid so while the ford and the prime minister's fleets they are collecting the wounded mallet is bullying the akizaku engineer who reveals it has a limiter on to suppress its reactions to uh, be optimized for the pilot Mallet demands the limiter be removed to Isaac's previous uh, chagrin. <laughs> I, I like how as mad as Mallet is, in keeping with Zeon, he has not struck the engineer. If you notice that, <laughs> he's really only like lifting him up by his collar. He hasn't punched him though or hurt him. So even as mad as he is, he knows Zeon to Zeon, we never hit each other. Well, you may never hit each other with with uh, like open hand violence or fist violence. However, when Lilia goes to tell Mallet that the Axox <laughs> is ready, we find out that he has taken some sort of drug that increases his reaction time but leads to mind deterioration, and he's also killed the doctor that gave him the drug that was like tending to him. Yeah, well, the doctor didn't want to give him the drug, I assume, so he had to be killed. Probably not. 
And yeah, obviously. But, I mean, this is this is for the glory of Zeon, though, so it's oh. it's understandable, right? Of course. <laughs> so Mallet and the Dom Squad they launch. They are still blindly following him. Lieutenant Barst confronts Mallet, but Mallet easily dodges him and cuts him down, which was sad. I was sad to see Lieutenant Barst uh, die. Yeah, but he went down fighting. He did a, a great attempted attack on uh, Mallet. It just didn't work out timing-wise, because the way it was animated was pretty cool. You could see him swing, but the Akzaku had closed the distance within his swing. Right. So yep. that's how fast it is. It It is faster than the attack of a Gelgook arm, which is very fast. It's also faster than Unit 5 now. Ford can't really keep up with him, and so he ends up employing a different strategy where he calms down and he basically uses his, his shield as a feint or a decoy, if you will, puts his shield out. And while Mallet is just blind with rage, he just charges through the shield, <laughs> not thinking that Ford's like, well, whatever. And he just stabs through the shield into Mallet's cockpit, destroying him, finishing uh, the battle. That's the end of Mallet. I thought we'd get a better death like panel for Mallet, but we just see the beam go into the, the cockpit and that's it. Yeah, it was a bit of a whimper death for Mallet. Yeah, but the last cell that we kind of see in Mallet's face is pretty awesome because he has like one bloodshot eye on like the side yeah. that kind of got burned and then his other eye is normal, but he's he's sort of like a half demonic mummy in his cockpit because he's got like bandages all over his face and stuff. And Yeah, it, it's pretty cool. He definitely was not having a great time. I don't know if surgery went well or whatever, but he did, he wasn't looking his finest <laughs> at his last moment. So he was smiling. So that, that was a good yeah, try. I guess. We, we got we got to mass produce that and give that to more pilots. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that was the one that Guineas made his people take. Um, possibly. I wish they did that connection. I wish I we learned more about that because Ina. Yeah, the look of horror on her face, the, like on that drug. God, I wish I knew more about what it was. I think that's a fair headcanon connection. They could they could be related. Sure, yeah. The the type of drug where a doctor would stop you from taking it, even though it's on the ship. Exactly. There's, there's some known danger there. Yeah. Uh, and that's pretty much it. The Dom Squad surrenders. Uh, Thoroughbred escorts the Prime Minister to Granada. They sign the treaty. And then some of the last panels we get are actually of Matt Healy and Ken Biederstadt back on Earth from Lost War Chronicles uh, in the in the rainy city because they have presumably um, stopped fighting as well once the treaty was signed. Yeah, that was a good callback. I was watching them. I was like, that looks a lot like. <laughs> yep, there they are. Yeah, uh, and that's that's kind of the end of the, the the canon version of the story, I guess. And then uh, that was the end of volume two. So this is three volume manga. I guess I should have said that in the beginning. But um, th there is volume three, and it is all what-if scenario. It's all what-ifs, basically. There's three more chapters, and I think the most interesting thing here, Isaac, is a cameo that I cannot figure out. So this is an open call to listeners to help me figure it out. But basically, in um, the first chapter, instead of Luce dying, he survives. Ford makes it back in time to rip the overloading pack off of his suit and throw it away. Which was brilliant, by the way. Yeah, I mean, that's a good idea, right? Yeah, if you're doing an alternate change to that situation, making it just as simple as, oh, by the way, the cockpit did work and he could get out, or, oh, by the way, the, the, the arm did work and he could throw the, the beam rifle away from him before it blew up, that's a little... That's too easy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but having Ford come to his rescue and rip out only the exploding um, generator energy pack 
that was way more brilliant, I felt. And it showed Ford's growth as a pilot and, um, you know, the whole teamwork thing. And really great addition to um, if you wanted to see Luce live. Yeah, and I liked Luce. I was sad he died. But at the same time, that is the, the teeth of the story, I guess, is, is him dying. So Did you know he was going to die? The, I, oh, I kind of did. The moment he said, oh, I'm just going to keep the, you know, the power going. You know, you, you guys yeah. need me. And that, I'm just a little bit more. At, at that point, I was like, oh, this is guy's done. Done. <laughs> I mean, as soon as they introduced the plot device of my gun doesn't work because it overloads, I knew that it wasn't headed in a good direction for, for Luce. Especially when they gave it to like the older pilot, you know, the right. experienced yeah. wise pilot trying to instill values into his uh, his young rash teammate. Yeah. Yeah. So it probably was a little predictable. The other change in that battle was that Mallet actually dies in that battle. Like he gets swallowed up in the beam this time, not just yeah. his face gets a little hurt. So that's it for Mallet. Bit of a downer ending for Mallet there, I guess, if you're a Mallet fan, but um <laughs> There's no Mal. Even I'm not a Mallet fan. No, there's there's no Mallet fan. There might there might yeah. be Akizaku fans. I just don't think they're Mallet fans. Yeah. <laughs> so then, basically, instead of the fleet being sent to Granada, because both units four and five are still intact, they get sent to a Bawaku to help in the battle. And then we kind of just get this cameo carousel, Isaac. We see them encounter Gato and Karius. Oh, that was cool. Cool. Gato shoots down a Salamis with his uh, Gelgoog machine gun, which is great. I love that scene. The Thoroughbred does battle with Johnny Ryden. Johnny Ryden almost destroys the Thoroughbred, but he's fought off by the gun cannon team. And there's one cameo here. There's, I don't know if you noticed this, Isaac, but there's a gym command space type that does really well. And I don't know who the pilot is. It, I think it might be Yukajima from the Blue Destiny manga. Hmm. I don't know enough about Blue Destiny towards the end of the war to know if he was at a Bawaku in a gym's command space type. I would assume he would be in the Blue Destiny, not a gym. So if listeners, if any of you know who the Federation pilot is in Operation If-6 Bloody Battle in lo- in uh, this manga, Space to the End of Flash, let me know. Is it you or who who is it? Who am I missing? I looked at the other ace pilots and none of them look like that person except you. So maybe it is you. I don't know. But it's clearly drawn to be a gym command space type, which is different than all the other gyms, which are either g- drawn as normal gyms or gym cannons. And there's not many gym command space types that were even made. So the fact that one is on the page is very significant. I just don't know who it is. And it's not named. And everyone else in here is not really named either, but you know who it is. Like Gato, you know who it is because Karius is talking to him. Johnny yeah. Ryden calls himself the Crimson Lightning. So everyone else has a little bit of a call sign. But this guy, there's, he doesn't really say anything. I just want to know who it is. It didn't even come across my radar. I was just like, oh, another cool scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he looks similar to Ford, but it's, it's clearly not Ford because he's in a Jim Command space type. So... And then they, uh, two big rows come out. Ford and Luce duke it out with, with the two big rows. They end up destroying both of them. There was a fourth team cameo, Isaac. Did you like that? You got to see your, your immortal fourth team. Formerly immortal fourth team. <laughs> <laughs> they all made it out of, of Baku, which is a miracle. I believe we saw Delaz's ship leaving. Yeah. Right? That was him, I, I take it. At first I was like, well, I didn't know Delaz got that close to Abawaku before he took off. But I was probably like, well, each time the story's retold, things kind of change a little. So, yeah, maybe he, he boosted away, realized he <laughs> needed to fuel up a little bit or pick something up. Then he went back to like kind of land on Abawaku because that ship was like right on the surface, wasn't it? I mean, it was pretty close. I mean, he did pick yeah. up Gato from Abawaku, so he was definitely there 
to some, oh, you know, okay. I don't know if he was right on it or whatever, but yeah, it did seem like he was pretty close. Maybe Gato was like, look, I still have stuff in my locker. Like, can we go back? And <laughs> like, all right, well, we'll stop no, for no. two minutes and then we got to leave. So that's why he had to stop. <laughs> I assume it was him because one, he was leaving. We don't really know that many people who, of note who left like that. And then he also yeah. said we have to focus on surviving, which I believe is what he told Gato, right? At, at the end, so. Yeah, pretty much. And then the last cameo we got, Isaac, was uh, Jake. His Gelgoog was sitting wrecked on a Baoku. He looks up and he says, I have no regrets, right, Commander Ken? And you can tell it's Jake because the Gelgoog has the three stripes uh, that Ken's foreign legion wears on their um, on their mobile suits. So that was kind of neat. Uh, I was wondering why, who that was. Yeah, yeah, it was Jake. Okay. Oh. So does he die there or he just surrendered? Uh, he does not die because he is in Gundam Legacy. Ah, so we'll see him again. Surrender. Okay. Well... Yeah, good for him to get... God, how did he manage to get a Gelgook? Wow. I mean, I, they, he probably got back to side five or side three, and they were like, you mean you're not a you're not a teenage pilot with no experience? Here, take this Gelgook and do the best you can. That's a good point. Yeah, they would treat him like that instead of like giving him the Ogu or Zaku. Oh, God, you know? don't put him in an Ogu. That's a death yeah. sentence right there. That was the... That was the oh God, what was the order? Oh, that's its own episode. What's your order? What's your headcanon order for how Zeon handed out mobile suits and mobile armors <laughs> at a Baku? So if you're top tier, you got like a custom mobile suit or mobile armor, right? Yeah. Unless you're already an ace, in which case you got your mobile suit. You already had it. Um, after that would be Gelgoogs. After that would be... Doms. Got Doms, Doms. Then Zaku's, then Ogu's. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and I guess if they had any weird suits laying around, like, you know, in Thunderbolt, right? We saw the, the Saikamu Zaku or something. Yeah. But there's, or, not, um, there's not many of those. I mean... What did they send out the guy in Igloo? Oh, the Zuda? No. Or... Um, oh, that other mobile armor? The, uh... Yeah, that, that monster mobile armor that they threw together, <laughs> the, whatever that was called. Big, big ring. Yeah, the big ring. big ring. There you go. You're, no, you're right. The big ring. Big ring's pretty top tier. So if you got sent in that, like, somebody took the time to really, you know, get something for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I got to think, <clears throat> most people, most top guys probably just got to go Goog if, if, there was, if there was one available. So Yeah. Uh, ideally, you would still have your original suit, though, if you're an ace. Sure, yeah. Your high mobility Zaku, your Dom, yeah. Yeah. So, and then in terms of the mecha, Isaac, there's really, we already talked about the Akzaku. The only other really notable mecha in this sh- uh, series were the units four and five. What did you think of their designs? I liked them. I thought they were, they're definitely early 2000s designs with the, with the poppy colors, but I like them. I have no problems with them. For me, they felt too 0083, and I don't mean that in a good way. I mean that in that they seem a little too ahead of their time. They looked like they'd fit much more in a Stardust memory side story, and they felt out of place here. I, I wasn't too thrilled about them a couple of times. Number one, I felt like they should have been more unique looking from each other because of their very different roles. Even if the Gatling gun ends up looking more heavy arms, and the other one looks more um, Viate from Gundam Wing, uh, that, <laughs> that was some of the roles that they filled, right? We had the long beam and then kind of a more sort of defensive one. So I thought they were going to go through that angle, um, but they didn't in the story. We, so we had a Gatling gun one. And, and then that other time where they said that they were upgrading their shoulders, you said, right? I thought, oh, cool. They're going to get shoulder-mounted weapons like the Predator. But, <laughs> but that didn't happen at all. They just gave them, I don't know, extra padding on the shoulders or yes. something, extra armor. 
I wasn't too thrilled about them. I'm definitely not going to get any models like them. And I feel like their designs were okay for a side story, but not great. Yeah, I wasn't like overwhelmed with their designs or anything. I, I agree with you that I wish they had, for example, if Unit 4's gun is so taxing, I would have liked to seen the the arm that holds the gun to be bigger than the other arm, for example. Yeah. You know, something, <laughs> or, or maybe the one, maybe Unit 5 with the Gatling, if the logic is that it's going to sit on a piece of debris, maybe its legs should be really big or and have, not claws is the wrong word, but in one of the shows we saw one of the suits have like some little claws that come down and like anchor itself into something. Uh-huh. Like maybe it could have a, a bigger system like that to keep it steady to use the Gatling gun, you know? Something to show that the design matches to your point it's intended purpose like if its whole point is to fire those two guns then it should be a little unique in that respect yeah i I couldn't agree more brian the beam one should have had this massive cable connecting the beam to a very large backpack generator that would have really hammered into us how much energy this thing takes and then the gatling gun itself it could have done a similar thing where it's got this belt-fed gatling gun that connects to a, a very large ammo drum on its back but you know we didn't get that unfortunately so i feel like the designs for them were um could have been better but were sufficient for the story yeah i mean all these models are available i believe in high grade 144 scale again there is no Axaku in 1 100 scale i think the Axaku would be a good candidate for a re 100 kit the other two units four and five those are available in master grade they're a little bit older now they they are based on the uh arc 78 2 version ka uh kits i believe i mean these were redesigned for by uh, katoki for this for this series um, so they look very much like his version of the RX-78 too. Because they're old and they're somewhat rare, they do go for like 70 to to $100 online, which is probably more than what you would normally want to pay for those type of kits. But if you are a fan, they are available. So and they do come with the big, you know, the big guns, Isaac. They that's the the point of the kit. So I'm sure the Axaku. I would hope there's like a conversion kit released or something where you can just take a a, a master grade Zaku and th- there's not much you have to do to get it turn into an Axaku. Yeah, I'm not talking about conversion kits. I'm sure there's yeah. a resin conversion kit out there. Maybe you can find someone selling one on Etsy or something. Uh-huh. Um, but I agree. I. I that's why I feel like it's a little weird. There's not a kit. I feel like that'd be an easy swap for them to sort of just modify the Zaku armor a little bit. And Yeah, low demand. How often do we see Axe Zakus in side stories? Well, that's the problem, right? Yeah. They haven't used it in many other stories, so until they use it again, I don't know that they're going to have a reason to make it, unfortunately. so No. So that's space to the end of a flash. Isaac, I guess it's time to do our scores, so... I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. I thought it was a fun read, but not spectacular. I really enjoyed the escort to Granada. I thought that was a great way to add to the lore mm-hmm. in an unexpected yet constructive way without really changing anything. I didn't really like Ford that much. Like you said, he was kind of a bit of a buffoon sometimes. I kept wishing Luce was maybe the main protagonist. And I also think Luce should have only used the cannon once to save the Granada meeting. I felt like it was uh-huh. a bit repetitive having him use it twice. I just felt it made it predictable when he used it the second time. I was like, he's going to use it again. He's going to die. I thought Mallet was a little one-dimensional, and he didn't he didn't really Im- improve over this course of the story. He just got more one-dimensional, if anything. Mm-hmm. Nord, I thought, was probably the, my favorite character, and I would have liked him seen... I would have liked to have seen him play a role in Mallet's death. Maybe he kills Mallet with a shot from his Chevet or something to preserve the Granada Peace Agreement. Would have been a better ending for Mallet. But yeah, I still think it was a really fun read. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, w- I was half expecting like a, almost an, an ending to Lost War Chronicles where it's sort of a case of them peacefully agreeing to stop fighting. But um, that definitely didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
I really enjoyed reading it. I had a good time. I'm glad it exists and it did add a lot more to the lore. My two issues, though, with it having Gundams in, I think, areas of the UC timeline where they shouldn't have been kind of is a bit of a sticking point for me. So for that, and also the the what if kind of being a little bizarre to throw in at the end, especially with how things played out. I'm still going to give it, though. Oh, boy. (laughs) I'll, I'll give it four out of five Haros. And that's still a pretty high score. If you're a Gundam fan, you should definitely read it. If you're a UC fan, you should absolutely read it. It's a good read and a fun time, even putting aside its minor problems. And um, I'm really glad we went through it, Brian. Yeah, and it's short, too. It's only, I mean, it's effectively two volumes. You can skip volume three if you want, because it doesn't really... It, volume three is short. It reads fast. Yeah. But the, the meat of the story is volume two. Here's a volumes one and two, so... If you like one of your war side stories, I highly recommend it. Listeners, let us know what you thought about this story. Let us know what you think about the all three new-ish mecha designs for this series, Units 4, 5, and the Akzaku. I don't hear a lot of people talk about the Akzaku. I don't know if it's just because no. no one knows about it or if it just doesn't have a lot of fans. Really curious to see what people think about the Akzaku because I just don't. I don't see a lot of people talking about it. I'm curious if the heavy arm fans just convert over to Unit 5 because it's... It's the heavy arms for the UC. <laughs> it is. It's literally, in, in, uh, basically in heavy arms colors too. Oh, that, I'm curious now. Do you like, are there heavy arm fans that go with the Ace Custom Norse Packard goof? Oh, mm. well, yeah. If you're a heavy arms fan, what do you like better? Gundam Unit 5 or the, or the goof custom? Wow. Oh, that, that goof's hard to beat. It had such an epic uh, appearance. Oh, you got to love the goof more. Come on. Yeah, it's so great. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I wonder how many of our listeners have read it, but I guess we'll find out. Um, or maybe they'll read after after listening to us, and then they'll they'll drop a comment. But yeah, love to hear what you think. All righty, listeners. Until next time, Isaac, take us away. All right, listeners, before you go to sleep tonight, stand next to your bed, get on your knees, put your hands together, look up at the ceiling, and hail Zeon. Good night, everybody.